white people. 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 What does it mean to be white in the United States today? There's not really a consensus. I mean, across the board, the most consistent voices are full of white supremacy and white shame. So this right here, this is what we're not going to do on my page. We're not going to come in with white fragility and white guilt and, oh, don't blame all white people. The problem is white people. That's the fucking problem. This is going to get me in a lot of hot water, but I'm going to say it. Unpopular opinion. So assuming that there is a little white privilege, let's just take that for granted. People have never done anything for me. Didn't you hear white people only do shit when it's like for themselves? That's, you know, that's what white people do. The dysregulation of white people is what produces violence. The truth that the most racist, evil people in America are white liberals. This is one of the many 263 reasons that I hate my own race! So no, there's no such thing as white pride, in part because there is no white culture. I feel so attacked right now. I don't know what to do. But um, for you to make this about race, this had nothing to do with race. I'm definitely going to get hate for sharing my opinion, but it has to be said. So this guy's a professional race baiter. The existence of a white American culture would make things complicated. Right. I mean, I, I think the country is fragmenting because at the end of the day, racial differences cannot fundamentally be breached ever. We're becoming the only virus that needs to be killed. And like any social identity, being white isn't about one thing or another, this either or identity. What does it mean to be white in the U.S. today without supremacy or shame? Or <laughs> is that even possible? Who are white people? What are white people? Where, when, why are white people? So many of these questions have already been answered and in a really significant way, white people aren't or haven't been the ones answering these questions. Data from Pew shows that the majority of white people don't like to talk about race or racism. And we especially don't like talking about race or racism with people who aren't white either. We've white people We've even gone so far as to legislate how we can or cannot talk about race or racism in our education settings. And as of this recording, seven states have banned critical race theory from its classrooms, while 16 state legislatures have proposed bans to be debated and decided in upcoming legislative sessions. In total, though, more than three quarters of the country has gone through this debate of critical race theory, or CRT for short, in its state legislatures. And all of this with the primary emotional argument being that no child should feel bad about their race. And that's a really important argument. And it's not the full emotional experience required to build toward our collective liberation. At least that's what the science is saying. Research out of the University of Nashville in Maryland have found that there's a sweet spot in talking, feeling, doing around race and racism within white people that actually makes an important difference for the good. There's a, uh, a this like spectrum of responses that white people have around race and racism, and researchers identified them as avoidance, guilt, and shame. Avoidance, they actually call it negation in the study. Avoidance basically says that race and racism don't matter. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum is shame, which boils down to white people who hate themselves or other white people and wish that they themselves were not always white. 
Now, researchers found that the more psychologically avoidant or emotionally shaming white people are of themselves or others, the more likely these two groups of people are to not do anything productive for our collective liberation. Let me say this a different way. If you avoid or you don't think about race or racism and how it negatively impacts everyone, but especially people of color, you are likely to do more racist things. And simultaneously, if you hyperfixate on the emotional damage and wreckage that racism has created in the US, leading you to disassociate from your being white or making you hate yourself or other white people because of their being white, you too are more likely to do racist things to people of color. Researchers found that along the political spectrum, more people who want to avoid conversations vote for Republicans, and more people who have shame around their being white vote for Democrats. Cue Malcolm X here talking about white liberals. There are many whites who are trying to solve the problem, but you never see them going under the label of liberals. That, that white person that you see calling himself a liberal is the most dangerous thing in the entire Western Hemisphere. He's the most deceitful. He's like a fox. And a fox is, almost, is always more dangerous in the forest than the wolf. You can see the wolf coming. You know what he's up to. But the fox will fool you. He comes at you with his mouth shaped in such a way that even though you see his teeth, you think he's smiling. Interestingly, this third category, though, emerges from the data, empathetic behavior. They call it guilt, but their descriptor sounds a lot more like empathy to me than anything else. Quote, I feel sad about the history of racism in the U.S., end quote. This empathy response had the highest rates to both happier and healthier emotional and psychological states and the greater likelihood for action towards our collective liberation. People are thinking and feeling about race and racism, which is different from those who avoid, but not to the point of making someone else's pain your pain, which is different from those who feel and perform shame. So there's this like sweet spot that we're aiming for that requires emotional intelligence of us and not avoidance or codependence. But how do we get there in this current climate? At The Spillway, we're creating a space using critical race theory and not just critical race theory as a pseudonym for talking about race and racism and the misnomers of CRT that have flooded the mainstream discourse, but the actual legal framework of critical race theory of interest convergence from CRT's foundational texts by Derek Bell. Because here's a really hard pill to swallow. The more we as white people decenter white voices and white needs, the less sustainable racial justice work will become, the further away our collective liberation is. Yes, white people have had the mic for centuries. I understand the impulse to pull the power cord. And how do we get this current contingent of 231.9 million white people in the U.S. on board? Are we just supposed to replicate the tools of whiteness and white supremacy, or can we at least try something else? As interest convergence so eloquently theorizes, every step, every single step towards systemic equity in this country has required that white straight cis men sign off on it. I'm not saying it's right. Interest convergence just says that equity in this country has required very specific people to sign off on it. And you and I both need that policymaker, that legislator, that CEO, that principal pointed towards our liberation. 
mind you, policymakers, legislators, CEOs, and principals, decision makers are starting to look and identify as something different from white straight cis or men. And that shift is terrifying the hell out of some, well, a lot of white people right now. And a core philosophy of this spillway is just this. We're going to get a lot farther in our liberation with honey than with vinegar. And hey, I get it. Shaming power holders can feel really good and can get some really surprising short-term gains. But, but the energy of shame that we put into that person rots. And it rots into an insurrection, into another teenager-led mass shooting into 31 white nationalists piling into a U-Haul headed to an LGBTQ pride event in Idaho. Hurt people can hurt people. We know this. Data and more than a century of social science backs this up. Yet one of the many things currently building the white nationalist movement is the ability for white people to hold and acknowledge other white people's feelings and hurts. That space doesn't exist outside of white nationalism. That's an egregious mistake. The more we trivialize or minimize these hurts, the more we fuel that movement. When in the history of ever has laughing at or telling someone to get over it ever healed an emotional or psychological wound? At the spillway, a key distinction is that we see, hear, and hold white pain and rage with tenderness and movements towards our collective liberation, actualizing our full humanity. And you'll find that everything we talk about here, unless specifically labeled as an exception to this rule, is this. We are white people talking to white people about white people things. And if you take that as anything that we say or do here as a critique, complaint, or analysis of people of color, you've grossly misunderstood our work and perhaps the importance of how holding this type of healing space for white people is so critical to our shared work. There are safe spaces for white people to be in multiracial conversations. There are braver spaces for white people to show up in multiracial conversation and take a back seat. There are even spaces for white people to show up and mobilize for people of color. And yet what we don't have are spaces for white people to collectively or individually heal ourselves. And this space is important because it's this really critical work folks of color have asked white people to do for decades that we just haven't made space for. Or as Martin Luther King says in 1965, Maybe we've spent far too much of our money establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. All I'm saying is simply this, that all life is interrelated. We are tied in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, it affects all indirectly. Strangely enough, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. And Dr. King, Dr. King isn't the first or the last person of color to talk about healing or holding white people's hurts, harms, and trauma. White people have been asked repeatedly to listen, center, and create action around the asks of people of color. And if we scratch the surface, just scratch, a theme begins to emerge from academics to civil rights leaders to primetime television. And this isn't from some 
fringe civil rights or collective liberation movement. This is Sonia Renee Taylor. Without taking care of your trauma, it is the tool you'll always go to. Acting in violence to the people of color in the world while you're proclaiming you want to be a good white person, a woke white person, you, you know, you disavow racism, but you're still using whiteness as the, the tool to reestablish power. And it's because you haven't dealt with your trauma. Go to therapy, deal with your shit, deal with your shit so you can stop harming people of color. James Baldwin. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow, and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. Toni Morrison. How do you feel? Not you, Charlie Rose, but don't you understand that the people who do this thing, who practice racism, are bereft. There is something distorted about the psyche. It's a huge waste, and it's a corruption and a distortion it's like it's a profound neurosis that nobody examines for what it is. It feels crazy. It is crazy. And it leaves, it has just as much of a deleterious effect on white people and possibly equal as it does black people. My feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. RuPaul. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Once you are aware of how you are being policed, you can begin the process of self-liberating from the position of realizing the mutuality of our liberation rather than suffering under the delusion that you are doing something for me. There is an intimacy in that realization. Yasmin Sedula. We wonder how whiteness could be both the problem and the best exit strategy. The problem and the final solution. Mind you, not every person of color feels this way. That white people need to work on healing and loving ourselves. Or to reframe that, getting our shit together. Folks of color are not a monolith. Before, during, and after starting the spillway, I've heard in no uncertain terms that some folks of color cringe at our mission, while others exhale a sigh of relief. This is not the only path towards liberation. This is merely one of them. And if this doesn't work for you as a white person, that's okay. Not everything in this world was made for you. White people really struggle with this one. One of the first lessons of the spillway is that we have to make our own informed decisions as white people. As Resma Menicum says, and this is an excerpt from his book, My Grandmother's Hands, on audiobook. There are no shortcuts or workarounds. There is simply a choice. Clean pain and healing, or dirty pain and more trauma. There is possibility, and there is peril. To all my white countrymen, I say this. Not only is it not my business to lead you out of white body supremacy, but I would do you a profound disservice by trying to do so. You need to develop, lift up, and follow your own leaders in the work of dissolving white body supremacy. If you don't, if you choose to follow a black Pied Piper, you will collectively reaffirm the myth of white fragility and helplessness in racialized contexts. 
You will also have no one to pass the baton to when your black savior retires, dies, or moves on, or turns out to be flawed like all human beings. So to do this work, we have to jump into some uncharted territory. Because this isn't about replicating or appropriating the works of folks of color, which a lot of white people working in anti-racism do. This is actually white people talking to white people about white people things. And before you get all flustered and unleash your unbridled shame culture at me, which from white people usually sounds a lot like this. I do not believe that white people should ever position themselves as experts or leaders in this work. We are to do our work, get our people, and join in efforts in our local communities to do the work to dismantle all of the ways that structural racism manifests. I believe that Black, Brown, Indigenous, and non-Black people of color are the best qualified to lead us through the dismantling of white supremacist violence, ideology, and delusion. When white people set ourselves up as experts and earn money off of the efforts of our anti-racism, we are causing violence. We've got episodes and bonus materials for you if you want to stick around and check out our frequently asked questions on our website, or you're free to shame the book by its cover. I'm joined on this journey with one of my favorite humans in the world, Jenny. Jenny shares with me an unconditional love for our love together. We've known each other for nearly 20 years, and I'm only 73 days older than she is. We've been around the sun nearly the exact same amount of time as each other and have loved each other for longer than before we never knew each other. Importantly, Jenny comes to this work more from a place of avoidance as I from a place of shame. And because this work is so relational, I thought it would be really helpful to ask Jenny to be my co-pilot for this adventure so you can feel anchored in our love for each other and for you in showing up. Connection and relationship building has to be our starting point. If we see each other as someone that needs to be fixed, how do we build trust from that? We just don't. We want you to feel part of this process. And in digital and remote formats, that requires creating familiar touch points or points of reference. So Jenny and I will open and close each episode with anecdotes, failures, stories, or reflections around the specific topics. But this first episode, this first episode is really special and important because it's just about getting to know each other, because that's truly how we start. And don't be surprised if it's not going as fast as you want it to be. We're building connective tissue here to support a sustainable ecosystem of change. We're not rushing in with a bulldozer and some sticks of dynamite that's not sustainable or altogether healthy. <laughs> We're gonna repeat ourselves some. We always hear things differently the second time around. And we're gonna slow down to 17 miles an hour, as Fred Jealous likes to say, so that we can easily distinguish our surroundings and ourselves. We'll speed up, sure, but there's a method to this process. Building our positive relationships towards our collective liberation is another reason why this work is meant to be experienced sequentially and in order. This is a serial. It's not episodic. If you think about what makes a relationship, a huge part of that is time spent together. If you're absent from half of the conversation or you duck in and out when it's convenient for you, you're going to get a relationship that's half full and sporadic. We're here for movement building and not momentary gains. Being in good relation means showing up in the good and the bad, the fast and the slow. And you'll notice throughout the evolution of the series, we're talking about gender as it relates to race. Race is one social identity, and it's a huge social marker that means so many things to so many different people. Collective liberation means that we're seeing, hearing, and valuing all parts of our experience. 
So in this first season, we're looking at the intersection of race and gender to build on our multiple ways of being. And ultimately, the work of the spillway is about choosing the path of love and empathy. But in order to choose this path, you have to understand yourself as lovable and see, hear, and feel what love in practice is and can be. And that can be so jarring to hear right now because we're constantly hearing. So white people, I am not extending grace to you because I don't have to, and nor do black people. Black people don't owe you shit. They don't owe you shit. I don't give a fuck. I just do not care about other people's white feelings. Like, I just don't. Hello. I'm sorry you can't stand white people. I can't stand us either half the time. And my job is to shut other white people down when they want to interrupt. <laughs> my job is to shut other white people down when they want to say, oh no, I'm not prejudiced. I'm a Democrat. I'm accepting. My job is to make sure that they get, that they have privilege. Yes, exactly. I am the oppressor. I am racist. And just for clarity, these are all white people talking. These narratives reverberate throughout large swaths of white culture, and in some part for good reason. Historically and currently, white people have literally shifted, massacred, decimated, imprisoned, poisoned, lied, and cheated nearly the whole of the world into forced submission and extraction. There are calls every day to shut white people down and shut white people up because we have had the mic for too long. But when that call comes from inside the house and white people appropriate the harm, violence, and conditions that Asian, Native, Latina, Southeast Asian, Black, and marginalized populations of color have been subjected to, that just creates more harm in the form of distracting from their real harm and making their pain yours when we cannot hold each other, when we cannot make space for each other as white people. And I want to be very clear. White people are hurting too. We have specific hurts that we experience as white people. It's not normal or healthy to dehumanize, avoid shame or other people at every waking moment. There are shoot blocks you'll arrive at in this process, which go through intergenerational trauma and perpetration-induced traumatic stress. Because the data and science that structures the spillway all points to racism and its explicit or implicit or systemic forms is and has always been a trauma response of white people. Long story short, Marshall Rosenberg said it best, violence is often the tragic expression of unmet needs, and that violence can come in the form of white nationalism or cancellation campaigns or white saviorism. Pick your choice. And last but not least, I just want to say this before we start this journey together, because perhaps it's the most important, well, this is all important, but the spillway is not a one-stop shop. Right now, we're trying to build one thing and build that one thing well, healing, affinity, and caucus spaces for white people. Will we do more things in the future? Maybe, but we want to get this first thing done right. So I want to say these two things in reference to that. Number one, educating ourselves as white people about histories, cultures, ways of being for indigenous, black, Asian, Southeast Asian, Latina, and marginalized populations is critical. And there are thousands of books, movies, magazines, podcasts, and organizations doing this work from the position of lived experience. We cannot stop educating ourselves and we have to support authors public scholars, creatives, and academics of color. 
Two, being in good relation with people of color is critical. And there's a billion dollar industry devoted to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in our communities, our workplaces, boardrooms, and shared spaces. We cannot slink into our individual room and tend our wounds all day, every day. Learning about what it means to be white, creating white community and white culture towards our collective liberation, this is the work of white people. We can do and hold multiple things at the same time. We can chew gum and walk, as my acting teachers used to say. We've got to heal ourselves while we continue educating ourselves and being in good cross-cultural and racial relation. And it's not easy. For many of us, this feels like so much work and that can lead to avoidance or shame. And a large part of that is because we're just not used to talking or thinking about race and racism because our parents or the communities that raised us just didn't help us develop this muscle or these tools in the way that folks of color have had to for survival. So be gentle with yourself. We're here to hold you and to see you as white people, as a white person. Let's start. As you have probably seen already, we talk with a lot of different people of varying backgrounds and specialties from white people who have started organizations to support men or white women, to white people working in somatics, ancestry, and restorative justice. We talk with an Ivy League professor, four anonymous white men, and even the former president and CEO of the NAACP. And that's not even all of the episodes. All of this is given to you with the hope and the intention that you will bring this and these conversations into your homes your neighborhoods and your communities, because we are all in this collective liberation together. Welcome to the Spillway.